My name is Lily Madden, and I'm a proud Aranda, Bundjalung, Kalkadun woman from Gadigal country. The Daily Oz acknowledges that this podcast is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people and pays respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We pay our respects to the first peoples of these countries, both past and present. Good morning and welcome to The Daily Oz. It's Monday the 11th of December. I'm Zara. I'm Sam. 2023 is somehow rapidly coming to an end and with it comes the end of Parliament, which had its last sitting day last week. On this podcast, we bring you the big political developments as they come. But looking back on the year, it can all seem like a bit of a blur. Now that things have officially wrapped, we thought it would be a good time to take a look back and look at some of the biggest political milestones of the year. TDA's journalist Harry Sekulich will join us in the deep dive to talk us through the biggest political moments of 2023. But first, Sam, let's do the headlines. Well, Zara, the big news yesterday was that Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk did announce she is stepping down as Premier. Palaszczuk has been the Premier of Queensland since 2015. When she announced her retirement yesterday, she said, I've given it my all and I have run a marathon. Now is the time for me to find out what else life has to offer. Her last day as Premier will be on Friday when a new leader will be decided by the Labor Party. The next Queensland election is scheduled for October next year. 2023 has been confirmed as the hottest year on record by the EU's Copernicus Climate Change Service. Global temperature records have been broken every month since June, making this the warmest year since records began in 1940. The federal government has announced new rules that will see taxes tripled for foreigners who buy existing houses in Australia and a doubling of fees if the houses are left vacant. The new rules were announced by Treasurer Jim Chalmers yesterday and is predicted to bring in an extra $500 million for the government. Chalmers said the changes are to improve housing affordability and supply. And the good news, the launch of a new tracking tool could make it easier to track greenhouse gas emissions. Nonprofit group Climate Trace released a tracking tool at the COP28 Climate Summit that'll make information about emissions from individual sites much more accessible to the public. It's hoped the tool will be a helpful resource for organisations to track and report on emissions reduction progress. All right, so Harry, today I have given you a bit of a challenge, a difficult one at that. Um, We are at the end of the year and we're looking back and I want you to pick the five biggest political stories of the year. Seems like an easy task. Yeah, look, thank you for that, Zara. I mean, there's just so much that happens Mm. in Canberra and in politics. So when you try to think of the five big moments... Next thing you know, you've got 50 moments on your plate. All right. Well, we're going to distill it. We're going to go, why don't we start with the easiest one? What do you think was the biggest political story of the year? So without a doubt, and I think you would agree with me, Zara, the voice Mm -hmm. to parliament referendum was definitely the biggest story out of parliament and out of Canberra this year. Yeah. I mean, I kept saying I thought it was going to be the biggest story really of our generation. We hadn't gone to a referendum Mm. before and it's unlikely we'll go to one again anytime soon. Can you just talk us through why you think it's the biggest political story of the year, especially 
you know, in kind of the parliamentary sense? Yeah, for sure. So I think, first of all, I should define what the voice to parliament actually was. So it was a proposal to add a First Nations advisory body into the constitution. So when Anthony Albanese came into power in May last year, he promised to implement the 2017 Uluru Statement from the heart. And so the first recommendation of the statement called for a voice to parliament to become permanently enshrined in the constitution. So we went to a referendum because we needed to vote as the Australian public on whether or not we agreed to change the constitution. When you say it like that, it seems so simple, just a yes or no answer, (laughs) but yet it it turned into just so much more. I think that we all know that it definitely went beyond the realms of just yes or no. Mm. So the government obviously was pushing for this uh, change to happen. The coalition formally opposed it, saying it was risky and a divisive proposal. We've heard a lot of, if you don't know, vote no from that side of politics. So it was a huge political story and for a number of reasons. The voice actually changed the composition of the parliament itself. So the Liberal Party's shadow minister for Indigenous Australians, Julian Lisa, resigned as a shadow minister so that he could campaign in favour of the voice. And going over to the Greens on the more progressive side of politics, Senator Lydia Thorpe quit the party when it was deciding its position on The Voice. She's now declared herself as a representative for the Black Sovereign Movement, which is this First Nations justice advocacy platform. Out in public, there were so many conversations taking place about The Voice and First Nations policy more broadly, and we saw roundtables, community forums in RSLs and school halls and community centres and... Of course, we also saw um, a lot of public rallies in the lead up to the referendum on October the 14th. But in the end, it was a fairly clear response, right? The results came in hard and fast about an hour and a half after the polls closed. The ABC's election analyst, Anthony Green, declared that the voice had been defeated. So it didn't get the double majority that it needed to be successful. So that's both a majority of Australia's population and the majority of the states. It actually didn't get either of those two things. So there was no chance of of that passing, but I do think you're right. That'll be one of the defining moments, I think, not just of this year, but of Anthony Albanese's prime ministership. I think that he had had a fairly long honeymoon period, for lack of a better term. Yeah, Uh, And it was... It was really a turning point when his government went so fully behind backing this and there was such a decisive rejection of it. So it'll certainly be interesting, you know, after his term is finished to see how that comes out and what is remembered of this time. Moving on, though, there wasn't just The Voice this year. There were other really big topics. So talk me through your next choice for the big stories of 2023. So, yeah, when I was thinking about some of the other big stories of the year, robo-debt definitely came to mind and the Royal Commission into the scheme. So just basically as a refresher, 
RoboDebt was this scheme set up in 2015 that lasted until 2019, where under the coalition governments, welfare recipients were told that they had outstanding debts. So this turned out to actually be illegal. And in fact, Centrelink issued over $1.7 billion in unlawful debt notices to hundreds of thousands of people. And Look, I don't know about you, Zara, but that's just a pretty mind-boggling number. So when the government changed hands last year, Albanese announced a royal commission into RoboDebt. The commission lasted months and months, and we heard from former prime ministers Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison, several senior ministers who oversaw parts of the scheme at the time, their staffers and the staff of the government departments in charge of actually carrying out the scheme, And what was quite upsetting for many people and definitely quite distressing to hear in the inquiry was just the human toll of this scheme. Two mothers gave testimony about the role of robo-debt in their son's deaths by suicide, and the commission said it became aware of at least one other death. And so Commissioner Catherine Holmes said that the scheme was, quote, responsible for heartbreak and harm, and the final report described RoboDebt as crude and cruel. Now, responding to the report, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says the Royal Commission has revealed a gross betrayal and a human tragedy. It was wrong. It was illegal. It should never have happened, and it should never happen again. That report was absolutely scathing, to say the least. Have there been any changes since the Royal Commission? Because I think one of the things that always come up when we talk about inquiries or Royal Commissions is, you know, it's one thing to find out this information and to uncover it, but it's another thing to actually make the change that should come next. Yes, so the Royal Commission made 57 recommendations and the government has agreed to bring in 56 of those. So the recommendations focused on things like changing how the public service works to avoid something like robo-debt happening again. All right, Harry, you have nearly used up half your picks of the year. What is your next one? So because everyone's ears prick up like a dog when we hear about corruption in politics, I'd have to go for the National Anti-Corruption Commission being set up this year. Abuse of power in the corridors of federal parliament has a new enemy tonight. The National Anti-Corruption Commission has officially launched in Canberra with dozens of referrals already received. It feels like at the last federal election corruption was legitimately the only thing we were talking about. And, you know, it was a major distinction between how the two parties were promising to move forward. But the government ultimately was voted in on a platform that suggested they would set up an anti-corruption commission. Take me through what that looked like. Yes. So after Labor was elected, a bill to parliament ended up passing, which ultimately led to the National Anti-Corruption Commission. Or for anyone who just needs to save themselves a bit of time, they can just call it the knack. Basically, the whole idea was to have a way of investigating corruption at some of the highest levels of power. And when I say corruption, the commission has defined it as people abusing their positions of power for private gain, breaking the public's trust, splashing around money for deliberate political advantage... The NAC can look into politicians and public servants and consultants, basically people that are making these big, important decisions in the most powerful offices of the country. Has it actually had any 
referrals yet? It's had a lot. It's actually had so many that really soon after the uh, NAC was set up, the commissioner said that they had 44 within two days and within weeks they were just getting flooded with hundreds of them. So while it is such an important development of this year, just based on the amount of referrals that are going in to the NAC, we can just safely assume that this is going to be a big story for the coming years and months ahead as well. It seemed like one of the things that was really characteristic of this year in politics was that there didn't seem to be so much of the coalition versus the opposition when it came to legislation, but rather the government negotiating with the Greens. Can you take me through some of the examples of how that played out in Parliament this year? So we had a big piece of climate legislation passed through this year. So it was an emissions reduction bill that brought in this thing called the safeguard mechanism. The policy is pretty important. I like to think of it as a button where when the moment strikes, all of Australia's big emitters, so in industries like mining, manufacturing, transport, they have to start paying for all the emissions released above what's known as a baseline. So if you're one of Australia's 215 biggest polluters and you're pumping out too much carbon into the atmosphere, you need to start paying for all the extra carbon you're releasing, specifically $275 for every tonne in excess of that emissions threshold. And so that threshold will just keep coming down every year, like to think of it like a staircase, 4.9% a year, not quite five, but 4.9%. Uh, so that will just keep coming down until 2030. And the idea is that the emissions from big industry will just keep dropping alongside that drop as well. Okay. And so because of the composition of parliament, the coalition didn't support this bill, which meant that the government needed the Greens and some crossbenches in order for it to pass. But that didn't happen so easily, did it? Yeah, no, that didn't quite happen. There was a bit of a tussle with the Greens and the Labor government about this particular piece of policy. The Greens wanted the bill to stop approving any new coal and gas projects. That's something we've heard repeatedly from the Greens this year. Their bid wasn't really successful, but the government did agree to some changes brought in by the Greens which included tougher emissions requirements on some gas projects around Australia. Okay, Harry, you're on to your final pick of the day. What is it? Tell me. My last and certainly not least pick is just a fever dream now. So, Zara, do you remember when we nearly were on the cusp of an early election? I mean, I remember that, but I don't know that the general public necessarily knew what was happening at the time. I have to admit something here, Zara. I'd kind of forgotten about this one, <laughs> that we could have been going to a general election this year. The deadlock over Labor's social housing plan has taken a new turn tonight and it could see voters forced into an early election. There was this huge standoff that seemed to just drag on and on and on and Basically, Labor introduced these housing laws called the Housing Australia Future Fund, promising to build 30,000 affordable homes in five years, which the government would fund through a $10 billion investment scheme. So to get that through Parliament, the government even needed the support of the Coalition or the Greens, which you've alluded to before. 
So the coalition came straight out opposing the plan, said it was too expensive and their contribution to this policy debate kind of ended there. And the Greens were more open to having the discussion, but it took a lot of convincing to get them over the line. For weeks and months, they firmly opposed the housing laws because the Greens felt the laws just didn't go far enough. They wanted the government to agree to bring in blanket rent freezes across the country. And just quickly, a rent freeze is a pause on rents going up any further in the context of lots of people having their rent increased. So the bill initially failed to get through both houses because the Greens blocked it. And this is where we started getting talking about the possibility of an early election, because the Prime Minister can basically say if one of the government's key pieces of legislation, in this case the housing laws, if they fail to pass the Senate multiple times, then he can pull what's known as a double dissolution trigger. So what a double dissolution trigger would mean is instead of voting for the lower house and half the Senate, the entire Senate would be dissolved. So every single MP and senator would be up for election. It doesn't happen very often. The last one we had was in 2016 when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister and the time before that was in the 80s. So it is pretty rare. Anyway, it turns out that didn't need to happen because the bill passed through Parliament with the Greens supporting it after the government had agreed to spend another billion dollars in 2023 on housing. So now the government's housing plans are underway and we don't have to go to the polls this year for an election. Harry, thanks for jumping on today's pod. If you enjoyed what you heard today, want to leave us a review, you can hop onto Spotify. There's a little Q&A section there where you can tell us what you're thinking, feeling, and what you want to hear more of. Thanks for joining us, though, and we'll be back again in your ears tomorrow morning. Bye.